this morning just by um, pointing you to an ad campaign that happened uh, a couple of years ago. Um, it caused absolute havoc and furore on social media and then in turn in several national newspapers. Uh, it was an ad campaign by Protein World for a particular weight loss pill that they were advocating. Uh, and uh, in it you can see the picture of the bikini clad model in the impossibly fit body um, and really with the, the slogan are you, um, are you beach ready? Are you beach ready? Have you got the beach ready body? Uh, and it was slammed it was slammed on social media and uh, in the national newspapers for being irresponsible for uh, being harmful and for promoting an unhealthy body image. Um, and it had to actually be removed from the London Underground. All the posters were to, had to be taken down uh, in response uh, to the criticism. Uh, but the very fact that an ad campaign like that exists, the very fact that a product like that exists, goes to show that as a society we are absolutely obsessed with health and beauty absolutely obsessed. Um, so even this morning, as I was preparing, looking out my uh, dining room window, uh, I was able to see uh, two herds, two herds, I think that's the collective noun, for the mammals cycling up uh, the Newton Arts Road, you know, the uh, middle-aged men in Lycra, you know, cycling up the, the Newton Arts Road. You t- anyone you talk to, almost everyone you talk to, has a gym membership. We're, we're obsessed with getting fit and healthy, staying as young as possible, looking as beautiful uh, as possible. And look, don't get me wrong, there's nothing bad with that. You've been given a body, it's right that you look after it uh, with correct diet and with exercise. Those are good things. The danger is when we become obsessed over those things. Uh, To me, counteract that balance, uh, where we say that health and beauty is a good thing, What we see in chapter 2, and if you've closed your Bible, please open it again. It would be really helpful to Titus chapter 2. If you've got a church Bible like this one, it's found on uh, page 1198. Uh, And what we see is that this chapter is all about health. It's all about health, spiritual health and fitness. Not physical health and fitness, but spiritual health and fitness. If you were with us last week, uh, we give, I give you a little bit of the background of the letter. Uh, Paul, one of the first followers of Jesus and a traveling preacher and promoter of Christianity, was traveling through all of the sort of um, Mediterranean Europe and, and, and the Middle East. Uh, and he arrived on Crete with a few friends Uh, And on the island of Crete, he began to publicly declare and privately share the good news about Jesus, that he was really God, uh, that he came, lived and died for our sins, rose again to give us hope for eternal life. And that if you turn to him, you could uh, have a relationship with God that begins now and lasts forever. That was his message in a nutshell. Uh, And lots of people, it it seems, believe that message put their trust in the Lord Jesus, and a number of little house churches began uh, on the island uh, of Crete. Paul, for whatever reason, we're not told, had to go back to the mainland, but he left his trusted colleague Titus with the job of encouraging, instructing, and organizing these little house churches. Uh, And if you were here last week, we saw that he was to do two things 
Number one, he was to teach the truth. He was to continue to teach the good news about Jesus. He was to continue to teach the truth. But in each of these little house churches, he was also to appoint leaders and teachers. And how would you know a qualified teacher? Well, according to Paul, you know a qualified teacher, a qualified leader for a local church. He's someone who has believed the truth himself and his life has been transformed by it. And you can read what that transformation looks like uh, back in chapter 1. And so what was Titus to do? Well, Titus was to do chapter 1, verse 9. He was to teach sound doctrine. Uh, He was then to uh, encourage these other teachers to, to teach the truth, but also to rebuke and correct anyone who opposed Uh, sound doctrine, false teachers, in order that they might be sound in the faith. Uh, Then in chapter 2, Titus was then to teach what is appropriate uh, and in accord to sound doctrine. He was to urge the older men uh, to be sound in the faith. Uh, And then he was to set an example uh, in his own life and speech and purity and godliness uh, to show Uh, seriousness and soundness of speech. In Northern Ireland, we talk about lots of things being sound. Sound. Um, uh, What we mean generally is that it's true or reliable. Here, the actual Greek word for sound that's repeated again and again in chapter 1 and 2 literally means healthy. Healthy. They are to have a healthy faith, teaching healthy truth, which leads to a healthy life. To be healthy. This chapter is all about how to be spiritually healthy. Uh, and as we read through, we see uh, to be spiritually healthy has got nothing to do with eating your five a day. It's got nothing to do with having a gym membership or staying super hydrated. Uh, in this chapter, we see uh, that there's a relationship between health and s- health, not self, verses 1 to 10. Uh, then we see health and beauty. And then we see health because of grace. Health because of grace. And so this chapter is all about being spiritually healthy, the, the results of that, and the reasons for that. Okay, that's what this chapter is all about. Uh, first, health, not self. And look, as we go on, this is by far the longest point of the talk. Okay, so if you're getting really nervous that we've been here a long time, just just relax. The other two are much shorter. So first then, health, not self. And that's really Paul's point uh, in uh, verses 1 right the way through uh, to verse 10. And Paul says there is a defining mark of spiritual health for a Christian. There's a defining mark of spiritual health. It's got nothing to do with having a six-pack It's got nothing to do with having a BMI under 25. Uh, The word is repeated. The the essence, the the defining mark of spiritual health is there in verse 2. It's in verse 5. It's in verse 6. It's in verse 12. I wonder, can you spot it? It's the idea of being self-controlled. That's what it means to be spiritually healthy, to be self-controlled. And in in Paul's language in the New Testament, being self-controlled is really suppressing the, the lurking temptation that still lingers in every human and every Christian heart to live for number one and to indulge our sinful passions. 
Self-control is suppressing that, that urge that we all have. And really in the Bible, uh, really since our first parents rebelled against God, every human heart born into their family has been pre-programmed, hardwired for selfishness. That's really what it is to be human. We are programmed to live for number one, to live for ourselves, to put ourselves first. But of course, when we do that, when we live like that and we indulge that, that temptation in each and every one of us, that is self-harming, actually, at the end of the day. It is corrosive for your relationships. And ultimately, it will alienate you from God. And so to live a self-controlled life, the opposite of that, is to live a life of love, to put yourself aside, to live a life of love towards others and obedience towards God. To live a self-controlled life is the defining mark of what it means to be a Christian. Uh, But of course, living a self-controlled life looks a little different for each and every one of us. We're not all the same. We're all equal, but we're not all the same. Uh, And so depending on your age and stage of life, living a healthy Christian life, being self-controlled, looks a little different. Uh, And so in this chapter, then Paul goes through different groups of people and really shares with us, unpacks for us what living a healthy, self-controlled life looks like for you. And so he talks to older men, he talks to older women, he talks to younger men, he talks to younger women, and then he talks to a group of slaves. Now Paul, perhaps annoyingly for us, uh, doesn't give age ranges for the, for the, for the groups. Uh, and the rule of thumb is, number one, if you're in any doubt what group you're in, you're old. Okay, right? If you're in any doubt whatsoever, you're old. Okay? Uh, But the other good rule of thumb is if you're in any doubt, apply both, right? Apply both. Okay? So he goes through then these these different groups of people. Number one, uh, he talks to older men. What does it look like to live a healthy Christian life if you're an older man? Uh, And really, in essence, to be a healthy older man as a Christian is to be gracious, not grumpy, right? Be gracious, not grumpy. And I think Andy just wonderfully demonstrated that for us <laughs> a, few, a few minutes ago. What does Paul actually say? Let's bring up the verse. What does Paul actually say? Uh, he teaches uh, teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, sound in the faith, in love, and in endurance. Teach older men to be temperate. That's the idea of not overindulging. Don't overindulge. Um, And then secondly, they're to be worthy of respect. We live in a culture that says, uh, if you have uh, retired, you've reached reached your maximum earning potential or have retired. If you're in either of those camps, uh, our culture says, great, relax, enjoy it. You have earned the right to indulge yourself with the finest of food, the best of clothes, the, nicest of en- the best of entertainment, the nicest holidays. You've earned the right. You've worked hard. You've earned the right to do all that. Go. Knock yourself out. Paul says, no, no, no. Be self-controlled. Live your life in such a way 
that you will be an example to younger men and women who look at the way you live. Uh, In particular, he calls them to be gracious, not grumpy. As we get older, we get, and have more experience behind us, we get a bit more cynical. We get a bit more critical. We become quick to criticize, slow to give praise. That's natural in many ways. Paul says, no, you're to be an example in terms of faith, love, and endurance. In faith, know what you believe and why you believe it. Know what you believe and why you believe it. If anyone asks, then you can share it. You can explain it. You're to be, given, you're to be an example in terms of love. Don't be too quick to be cynical and critical. How about you be kind, encouraging? Um, how about uh, you be caring towards others? And also model endurance, endurance as we get older. Inevitably, we will be bereaved. As we get older, inevitably, our health will give out. But as we endure all of those trials, those difficulties, with trust in God that he, despite these things happening, he is still wise and he's still good. Giving praise to him in the midst of those things. Showing hope, the hope the gospel has in the midst of those things. That will be incredibly attractive uh, and incredibly inspiring for anyone who looks on at your life. And so older men, don't be grumpy. Be gracious. Be be filled with grace. Love, faith, and endurance. Second group, older women. Uh, As I look out, of course, I don't see anyone in that category here this morning. Uh, But let's just look at these verses anyway. Assuming all of you will live long enough to one day in the future uh, become older, older women. What does Paul say? What does Paul say to older women? Well, they're to be godly, not gossips or guzzlers, okay? Not gossips or guzzlers. Uh, Verse 3, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not slanderers or gossips, or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Uh, Older women are to be reverent. That is the idea of literally being conscious of the presence of God. Conscious of the presence of God. Not just in church for the two hours on a Sunday, but conscious of the presence of God all through the week, wherever you go and whatever you do. Conscious of the presence of God and live your life in such a way that you are conscious that God is watching. Uh, They're to be reverent. They are not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine. Uh, Again, the, the idea here is Paul assumes these women will have a little bit more time Perhaps the children have grown up and flown the coop. Uh, Perhaps uh, they're coming to the end of their career uh, and have a bit more time now to spend time with with peers and friends uh, to to have a bit of a gossip together, share a bottle of wine together, uh, which again loosens the tongue even further, uh, which means you say things you might regret. Paul says, don't be like that. Don't be like that. Don't follow the example of loose women. Right? Don't do that. Don't be like that. If you're wondering what gossip actually means, I think a good definition of gossip is confessing other people's sins. That's what gossip is, confessing other people. And there's ways that we can sort of 
excuse that away, can't we? Oh, no, I was just, I'm just asking because I'm just concerned for them, just what's going on in their lives at the moment. Paul says, no, don't be like that. Don't be gossips. Don't be confessing other people's sins. Don't be the sort of person who is desperate at the end of the day for that glass of wine. Uh, And when you sit down to drink that glass of wine, half an hour later, the bottle's finished. Don't be like that. Don't be addicted to wine. Don't look to that to give you comfort, uh, to give you satisfaction. No, no. Instead, they are to be those who teach there to be those who teach. Now, in each case, Titus is to teach these different groups with one exception. Uh, and the exception is young women. Titus is not to, called to teach young women here. And in an age where there's been many high-profile scandals uh, by Bible teachers and ministry leaders uh, through um, in this whole area, I think this is... <laughs> Very, very, very good advice. Titus, we know, who's addressed as one of the young men, down in verses 8, 7 and 8. Titus is a young man, uh, and so he's not to be spending too much time with the young women. So who's to teach the young women? Well, it's the older women are to teach the younger women. It's not primarily like this kind of teaching, I don't think Paul has in mind, uh, where you stand in front of a lectern and give a lecture. Um, It's the idea of modeling, demonstrating, coaching, mentoring, encouraging, guiding. Uh, And so if you are a young woman here and you see a younger woman that you feel prompted to draw alongside to encourage in her faith uh, and in her godliness, that would be, in my view, a spirit-prompted encouragement that you should listen to. Uh, Paul encourages older women to be those who get alongside and encourage the younger women. Next. The next group uh, Paul addresses are those younger women. What are the older women to teach them then? Uh, Well, they are to be taught essentially four things. Four things. But before we get into that, Paul assumes that all of the younger women are married. That's just an assumption Paul makes. Now, Paul is not saying, he's not saying that you cannot be godly as a young woman until you're married. He's not saying that. But in that culture where you got married from 13 on, the vast, vast, vast majority of young women were married. That's just a fact. Uh, And so the culture that Paul is addressing looks a little bit different uh, to ours. Um, But if you are currently married and a parent, then this this is particularly useful advice, I think, for for you. Four things Paul says. First, uh, the older women are to teach and demonstrate and encourage the younger women to love their husbands and their children. Just pause and think about that for a minute. Is that not a pretty shocking command? Paul is working on the assumption that loving your husband... And loving your children is going to be difficult and require effort and encouragement for you to do it. I think that's incredibly liberating, that thought, to be honest. It's hard to love people sometimes. Husbands, often and almost especially at times, Christian husbands, can be thoughtless, petty, harsh, unkind. And so we are an unlovable lot at times. Um, Children. 
Yeah, they're cute when they're asleep, as the book says, but uh, when they're awake and they are demanding and defiant and disobedient and ungrateful, it's hard to love the wee rascals sometimes, is it not? And what you need then, if you are, as Paul assumes, normal, you're going to need encouragement. You're going to need encouragement. And that encouragement will come not primarily from your peers. Hopefully it will come from your peers, but it won't come primarily from your peers or mum's net. Uh, But it will come from older women who've been there before and come out the other side and can give much-needed perspective and advice that they've learned along the way. So first, uh, young women are to be encouraged to love their husbands and love their children. Second thing they're told is to be self-controlled and pure, self-controlled and pure. Young women are to be friendly, not flirty. Uh, Young women are to be pretty, but not seductive or immoral. Uh, Again, Titus is not the guy to pull up a young girl on those things, is he? He's not, that's, that's not appropriate for him to, to pull up a young girl on that. But yet an older woman, she can draw alongside and have a word with gentleness and encouragement uh, and kindness uh, and provide a little bit of guidance uh, on those things. The third thing young women are encouraged is to be busy at home now. Let me just, whoa, let me just pause there. Let's just take a break for a second. Uh, before you slam Paul or just rip this page out and say, what does he know? You need to bear in mind that Paul is writing to a pre-industrial revolution uh, scenario. Who worked at home in those days? Everybody. Everybody worked. You did not commute to work. You worked at home. Everybody worked at home. Women worked at home, men worked at home. In fact, in those days, men, women shared a bigger part uh, in the family business, whether it was if you were a potter or a farmer or whatever, women played their part in the family business, and men actually played a greater part in the education of children uh, than they do since the, the Industrial Revolution. Paul is not saying that women cannot have a career. That is not, that is not in his thinking at all. He is saying to women, Young women, as he says elsewhere to everybody, do not be lazy. Be industrious for, and, and work hard to provide for you and your family in whatever context that looks like for you. Uh, so don't just throw out what Paul is saying here. Be busy at home. And then lastly, and again, probably most controversially, he says that women are to be subject to their husbands. Subject to their husbands. Can we really continue to believe that sort of thing today in our modern uh, egalitarian and gen- uh, situation where, where we hold high as a virtue gender equality? Um, but again, Paul is speaking particularly to, to young women. He, he addresses husbands, the complementary instructions to husbands he includes elsewhere. Um, And again, it is really important that uh, husbands don't read this and are too quick to point the finger at their wives uh, because Paul will have tough things for you to to hear elsewhere. The challenge is for both of us 
to apply what, what is appropriate for us. And the challenge here is that Paul is simply calling young women to apply a principle that all Christians are to apply to their situation. To give themselves to those they love for their good. That is the principle. To give themselves for their, um, in, in the case of a marriage, to give yourself to your spouse for their good. Setting aside your own preferences and your own agenda uh, and putting their needs first. We are all called to do that. And so in Ephesians 5, Paul is super clear uh, to husbands. The complementary instruction occurs, occurs there where husbands are to love their brides as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, if a husband is giving himself sacrificially for his bride and is considering her needs above his own, and the bride is doing the same, what you have there is a recipe for something beautiful. A recipe for something beautiful. And so, here are the four challenges then for younger women. They are to love their husbands and their children. They are to be self-controlled and pure, busy at home, being subject encouraging, supportive to their husbands, uh, self-sacrificial love for their husbands, assuming that husbands will be doing the same. Next group, the challenge then is to young men, young men. Young men get one command, just one, right? Be self-controlled. Now, if you think of yourself as a young man, you maybe think, great, there was a whole list of the young women. I only get one thing I've got to do. I'm getting off lightly. Let me just suggest, as a former young man, now, sadly, as a former young man, that's more than enough for you to be getting on with. <laughs> that's more than enough for you to start off with. Just think about how that applies right across the board. If you're a young man, you, you should be self-disciplined, self-controlled, Think first about when you get in and get out of bed. When you get in and get out of bed. Because when you, what, at what time you get into bed, what time you get out of bed, will have a huge determining factor over whether you're a person who reads the Bible and prays or not. So even at the level of getting into bed, you should try to now be building in self-control, self-discipline. Perhaps the, the, the big ugly monster uh, in the room is this whole idea of being self-controlled in your use of the web, use of the internet. And if you do not now begin to build in self-discipline into your life about websites that you will look at and websites that you will block and you will never go there, that will have a huge determining factor over whether you are someone who is going to be a person that's worthy of getting married in the future. Because if you indulge in that whole seedy, filthy area of pornography online, it will, distort, it will distort your view of sex and relationships. It will enslave you. Uh, it will lead you places you don't want to go. It will potentially ruin your relationships in the future. What Paul is... Uh, and and that's, just, that's just two areas. areas it's self-discipline in terms of when to get in and out of bed, when to what, where you go on the internet, how you use your time, how you use your money, and thousands of other things. 
self-control. Suppressing the internal urge to live for number one and indulge your sinful pleasures in order to love others and love God. Um, Again, the assumption Paul here has um, is that if you want to be a self-controlled older man, verse 2, you need to be a self-controlled younger man. You need to start now. You start now. Because how you, the habits you live, you, you, you build into your life now, will either form you or haunt you for the rest of your days. Young men are to be self-controlled. And there's a lovely assumption in all of this is that with the use of Scripture, the support of other Christians, and the help of the Holy Spirit, self-control is, it really is possible, it really is possible to be self-controlled. Older men, older women, younger women, younger men. And lastly, slaves. Again, this is quite a controversial section in our day. We know that it's a widespread problem even today. Human trafficking is a a horrific problem today, a horrible evil in our world where men and women are treated like slaves and shipped around the world uh, to be used and abused by others. Look, Paul is not endorsing slavery here uh, in any way. Paul was one of the only ancient writers to publicly condemn slavery. And he does so in in 1 Timothy 1 verses 9 and 10, where he condemns slave traders. Now pretty soon if slave traders stop working, you'll have no slave trade anymore. Um, Paul is not endorsing slavery in any way. And also the slavery, it's just worth knowing that the slavery that was happening in the ancient world uh, was not limited to any race uh, and it was not limited to any type of work. Uh, And so when we think slavery today, we think human trafficking or we think black African slavery, where it was limited to one race and one type of work, manual labor. In the ancient world, anyone could be a slave. Uh, Slavery wasn't for life. You could earn money as a slave, and there were many professions that were quite prestigious, and yet you were a slave. Doctors were most often slaves. Um, We know that Joseph in the Old Testament was a slave, and yet he was the manager of the whole estate. Uh, And actually, the closest parallel then today to what Paul is talking about here, slavery, might be the employer-employee relationship. Uh, And a few of you are suspecting, oh, well, I always suspected that anyway, that I was a slave. But there you go, you've been, the parallel has been confirmed for you. Um, And Paul then is writing to those who are working under authority, working under authority. Uh, What are they to do? Well, first they're to submit and they're not to steal. They're to submit. They are to be, when told to do something, not argumentative and defiant. Uh, they are not to be uh, moaning, grumbling under their breath. Well, you know when you can stick that rota, or you know when you can stick that report. No, no, no. What, what can I do to help? I'll do that right away. To be someone who is, works hard uh, and is not, steal- not, not stealing. That is not stealing resources, but also not stealing time, not lazy, going and hiding from where the real work is supposed to be happening. Christians are to be those who submit, who work hard, are worthy of respect, who are trustworthy, honest, uh, hardworking. Those people that employees love to hire 
and teachers and lecturers love to teach. Wouldn't that be great if we were known in that way? Christians, oh, they're the, you should definitely hire a Christian. They're the best people to hire. What you see here is health, spiritual health, a means avoiding self. Does that make sense? To be spiritually healthy means not being self-obsessed. It involves suppressing your selfish desires and urges in order to love God and love other people. That's what it looks like to be a healthy Christian. What will be the results of that sort of lifestyle? What will be the results of that lifestyle? Second, health and beauty. Health and beauty. Just sprinkled in these verses, you have a few so that's. This will be the result if you live like this. If you live a healthy, uh, selfless life, living for the good uh, of others and for the good of God. Verse 5. If you live like this... um, Younger women, if you live uh, like that, others will not malign the word of God. Um, speaking to uh, Titus himself, he is to live in a way that shows integrity and seriousness so that uh, those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Again, slaves, they are to not to steal but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way, they will make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive, attractive. I came across this quote just this morning um, by Simone Weil, uh, and she says this, imaginary evil is romantic and varied. Real evil is gloomy, monotonous, barren, boring. Imaginary good is boring. Real good is always new, marvelous, and intoxicating. As you read through that, it sounds so boring to live a life, you know, submitting to other people and doing what is good. It just sounds so boring. But actually, when you live that way and you see someone live that way, it is a beautiful thing. It is attractive. It is attractive, intriguing and attractive to others. Paul uses the word attractive there just uh, in verse 10. Uh, and it's actually the word to adorn to adorn um, and so you will have at, at a wedding uh, you will have a bride who is adorned in a beautiful dress and lovely jewellery she may be already beautiful but those other things then highlight and accentuate the beauty that was already there you get the idea? Paul, what Paul is saying is that the gospel, the good news about Jesus is already beautiful. It's already beautiful. But as we live like that, a healthy Christian life, as we live lives uh, that adorn the gospel, we will highlight and accentuate its beauty. As we live lives of kindness, compassion, generosity, we will highlight the kindness, compassion, and generosity of God. Health, not self. Health, which leads to beauty. Lastly, and very quickly, health, 
because of grace, health because of grace. You see, we could talk about what the Christian life looks like till the cows come home. Uh, We could talk about the wonderful results of the Christian life um, until the cows come home. And that might prompt you to do something, but you need a reason. You need a reason to do this. Um, And Paul wonderfully gives that. And I'm sadly going to cheat you this morning. Uh, And we're just going to skip over these verses. But verses uh, 11 through to 14 are the reason why you should live a life like that. The reason why. For, for verse 11. Uh, Here's the reason why we should live like that. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. And it teaches us to say yes to, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. The grace of God teaches us to say yes and to say no. How does it do that? Well, when Paul's talking about the grace of God, he's not talking about a characteristic of God. Uh, fundamentally, he's talking about a person here. When the grace of God appeared, and then he talks in a couple of verses' time about the, the appearing of the Lord Jesus, he's in, in the same ways the two appearings refer to the same thing the the first appearing of the lord jesus and the second appearing of the lord jesus if you want to understand the grace the generosity and kindness of god then you look at jesus that's where you see it most fully most clearly those things most fully most clearly displayed where he gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. And so the grace of God will teach us to say yes, and it teaches us to say no. First, it teaches us to say yes. Because being godly uh, is not about stripping stuff out of your life. You know, so if I don't, um, if I don't drink alcohol in excess, and I don't swear, and I don't sleep around, uh, then I'll be godly, Right? No, is Paul's answer. Godliness is a positive thing, not just a negative thing. You want to be godly, you need to look at God. You need to look at the Lord Jesus and live like him. Live like him. He is the one who will teach you what it looks like to be godly. Uh, he, and again, so how, if you want to be godly, it's not, it will not involve me standing and wagging my finger at you, telling you to buck up your ideas and try a bit harder. If you want to be motivated to live a godly life, then you need to gaze at the compassion of the Lord Jesus. You need to gaze at his generosity, at his kindness, at his hospitality, at his forgiveness. And as you gaze at that, you will find it increasingly attractive and you'll be inspired to follow his example. The grace of God teaches us to say yes It models for us what godliness looks like, but the grace of God also teaches us to say no, to say no. It motivates us. It teaches us to say no in two ways, I think. First, it it teaches us to say no to an ungodly knife prompted by our gratitude to God. If we understand that lust and unkindness and laziness, and gossip, and slander, and greed, and envy, and pride are all things that are so obnoxious to God, 
so unforgivable at one level that he had to send his son to atone for them. If you really begin to understand that, then you'll never want to play around with those things anymore that are so obnoxious in God's sight. And as a response of gratitude to a kind and gracious God, we'll want to cut those things out of our lives. But then, it also, um, I think as we look at the gospel, as we look at the person and the work of the Lord Jesus, we are also struck by his goodness. We're also struck by his goodness. Let me give you an example. Imagine a young boy uh, who's been adopted. He's had a hard, hard time in his early life, but he's been adopted into a brand new family. And as he comes to learn about the family rules, he begins to push back on them because he yet doesn't trust his family. It sounds initially as the, the family rules are being shared that they're spoiling his fun uh, and getting in his way. But as he gets to know them and he realizes that he doesn't have to obey first, he doesn't have to obey the rules to stay in the family, but that he's been fully adopted. They're absolutely committed to him no matter what. And as he gets to know them and realize that they are wise and they are good and they would ask nothing of him that isn't for his good, as he begins to understand that, he will then be motivated to do what they call him to do. Isn't that right? You see, the grace of God teaches us to say yes and teaches us to say no. It provides the powerful motivation that we need. You will never be changed by just trying to obey the rules. Turn over a new leaf, making a whole set of New Year's resolutions, pulling your socks up, trying a bit harder. Those things will never work. They'll never change you. The only thing that has the resources and the power to reorder your love, uh, to give you new longings, is actually the truth of the gospel itself. The truth of who the Lord Jesus is and what he has done for you. And as we gaze at him, as we marvel at what he's done in awe and wonder, we will be inspired. We'll be inspired and motivated to live a life that is increasingly healthy. Healthy. Not selfish. That's increasingly beautiful. Not ugly. And that is increasingly motivated uh, and treasuring of the grace of God. As we come now to the Lord's Supper, that's what we're going to do. That's what we're going to do. We're going to gaze again at the goodness and the kindness uh, of the Lord. Uh, celebrate what he has done for us. And allow that to begin to reshape us, to transform us, uh, so that we are people who go out from here uh, eager, keen to do what pleases him. Let me pray for us.